Good morning. And yes, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and yes, the Patriots are not playing. Uh, That's how I feel about the McClishes and the Hunger Games, man. They always win. All right. Um, I I won't be stressed today. That's a good thing about the Super Bowl. And I'm not sure who I'm pulling for totally, but uh, I got to say that Patrick Mahomes is a hard guy to root against. Um, I I, I put a a clip on my... uh, Facebook page that I found where he's talking about his faith and how every, before every game, the night before every game, he goes to chapel and he walks the field before every game and is asking that God would use him, that he could glorify God in whatever he does. And so hard to read against God that everything he does, he sees he has a platform to lift up the name of, of Jesus. So enough of the Super Bowl talk. <laughs> um, hey, I, I want to start off with the passage from Matthew um, it, that records two of very powerful and very necessary events before Jesus launched into his uh, earthly ministry. And, and within this passage, there are, well, there is a very powerful truth about our identity that's kind of buried in there that we're going to pull out towards the end of the message. Uh, but you'll be very familiar with this uh, reading beginning in uh, Matthew chapter 3. Uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is saying there, basically, you know, after 400 years of silence, where God didn't talk to his people, John the Baptist rose up as a prophet and began to preach a message of baptism for the repentance of sins. And so now this is what people needed to do in order to be right with God. And Jesus was not one to disobey God's commands, right? And so he he obeyed. Uh, Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, an identity thing, uh, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in his hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you'll bow down. And worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Heavenly Father, may you bless the reading of your word. And uh, Holy Spirit, we want to set apart the next few moments for you to do a work in our hearts and minds. We thank you that, <laughs> that we are who you say we are, uh, that we are children of God. We thank you that we can stand in your love, that we can build our lives upon your love because it is a firm foundation. Uh, God, I just pray that you would help people open their hearts, open their minds to your truth today. Uh, Help me to speak it in the way that you want me to. 
Jesus' name, amen. amen. Welcome to week three in our series, 2020 Vision. And, and remember the series, it's all about having visual acuity, about having clarity of vision when it comes to six of the most important areas of your life. You know, we want to see Jesus clearly, the church clearly, ourselves clearly, our relationships, our work, and our assets clearly. And so far we've looked at seeing Jesus for who he is, and last week we looked at we need to see the church as the hope of the world. And listen, if you miss either or both of those messages, I really encourage you to check them out online, because these are two areas of your life where you must have 2020 vision. Get it? Good. Now this morning we're going to talk about seeing yourself through his eyes. And I've been looking forward to uh, this message uh, all week long. Because the truth is that my visual acuity, how I see myself at times, is far from the 2020 vision that God wants me to have. Okay, let's do this. There are five points in your notes this morning. Uh, the first is what we see. What we see. I don't know if you had a chance to, to look in uh, the funhouse mirror that is taped to the, the wall in the foyer. If you did, how did you look? And I've always loved those things. I've got to be honest. I love those things, right? And I'm not the only one, too, because on Friday afternoon, I, I saw Tom Zacharias, one of our elders, outside the office, and he was doing all this. I'm going, like, what the heck is that guy doing? I go, oh, that's right. He's looking in at the funhouse mirror. And I've got to admit, I, I, I spent a lot of time looking in that uh, uh, in front of that many times this week. And listen, if you looked in that mirror, I have some really good news for you. It's not you, it's the mirror, right? It's not you, it's the mirror. And, and throughout this message, every time that you, you hear me say, it's not you, I want you to say, it's the mirror, right? And let, let's do a dry run. It's not you, it's the mirror. Good job. You're not that short. You don't have two heads that kind of match together. That's my favorite one. You know, your arms aren't six feet long. You see those mirrors are curved. And basically when they're curved in, you get stretched. When they're curved out, you get squished. And when you have curved in and curved out, you get squished, you get squished and stretched, right? And, and they're fun to look in. I, I got to be honest. But there's another mirror that's not so fun to look in. Here's the deal. I'm convinced that many people today have a distorted image of themselves. I'm convinced that when many people look in the mirror, when they look at themselves, that they do not see who they really are. And I'm also convinced that what many people do see, they do not like all that much. I understand, I agree with what Brennan Manning writes in the foreword of his book, uh, A Glimpse of Jesus. And yeah, I read the forewords of books because there's some good things tied in there. And, and, and he talks about how this thing, not liking ourselves, he calls it self-hatred, is at epic proportions in our world today. I mean, depression and anxiety is on the rise. You know, tens of millions of, of Americans struggle with that. The suicide rate is on the rise. Alcohol abuse, drug addiction is on the rise because people do not see themselves as they are. I, I think this distorted image people have of themselves is why a Christian song became so popular by Lauren Dangle called You Say. You know, uh, 
you know, she won a Grammy for it. The, you know, she, she won an Ellen and sang it. I saw people singing it on The Voice. Americans Got Talent, right? It's a phenomenal song. And here, here's what it says at the beginning. I keep fighting voices in my head that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. Question, what do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see when you look at yourself? Listen, chances are that what you see is distorted. Remember, it's not you. I'll give you a two out of ten. You'll get get better. Uh, The next point, what it causes. What does this distortion cause? It basically causes shame. Now, my studies for this message, I read an awesome book written by Lewis Smedes. I have an extra copy that I haven't abused too much up here. Someone wants to grab it after service. It's called Shame and Grace, Healing from the Shame We Don't Deserve. Uh, He's a professor of integrated psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary. Here's what he writes about shame. Shame comes when no one else is looking at you but yourself. And what you see is a phony, a coward, a bore, a failure, a dumbbell, a person whose nose is too big, whose legs are too bony, or a mother who's incompetent at mothering and an all-in-all poor dope with little hope of ever being an acceptable human being. Feeling shame is about our very selves, not about some bad thing we did or said, but about, <clears throat> about who we are. It tells us we are unworthy, totally unworthy. You see, it's not as if a few seams in the garment of ourselves need stitching. No, the whole fabric, whole fabric is frayed. We feel that we are unacceptable. And to feel that is a life-wearing heaviness. Shea-burning people, the sort who Jesus had in mind when he invited the weary and heavy-laden to trade their heaviness for his lightness. I understand a lot of people, when they look in the mirror, when they take a look at who they are, feel shame. They feel unworthy. They feel unacceptable. And they live in fear. Fear that they will be rejected. Fear that one day they will be put on the scales and be weighed and found wanting. And in a chapter called A, a Very Heavy Feeling, Smeed lists some feelings that people had shared with them what they felt at times about themselves. And Feelings that he said at at times he feels the same way. And perhaps maybe you've had some of these same feelings. I know I have. So right now, go ahead and take a look at yourself. I mean, peel back the layers and take a real deep look at yourself and how you see yourself. And don't worry, no one else can see what you're seeing, right? It's just you seeing it. And here's this list. Here's what people say. Here's how they felt. I sometimes feel as if I'm a fake. I feel some people who admire me really knew me. They might have contempt for me. I feel inadequate. I seldom feel as if I am up to what is expected of me. When I look at myself, I seldom feel any joy at what what I am. I feel inferior to the really good people that I know. I feel as if God must be disgusted at me. I feel flawed inside, blemished somehow, dirty sometimes. I feel as if I cannot measure up to what I ought to be. I feel as if I will never be acceptable. I understand when we persistently feel the things on that list or or things like that, what we are feeling is shame. And what we're afraid of is rejection. 
And again, shame is not about some bad thing we did or said. It's about who we are. Shame tells us that we are unworthy and that we are unacceptable. And here's the deal. I'm convinced that many people in this world and maybe even some in this room don't feel all that good about themselves. And number two, I'm convinced that not one of us feels good about ourselves as we should. You know, I think the 20th century comic Charlie Chaplin may have been right when as a sad old man he gave a deep sigh and he said, the trouble with the world is that we despise ourselves. Kind of depressing, isn't it? But I get it. I mean, I woke up this morning and, and it was in one of those Sunday morning moods and I wasn't feeling good about myself. And I, I started writing two pages of, you know, of stuff about, man, you're this, you're this, you're this. What business do you have to go up there today and talk to people about living the Christian life? Two pages. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but then I wrote, I, I said, okay, that is some really dark stuff, Steve. But I know all those things are lies. The sermon on this day is for me. And then I read John 21. Um, it's a reading for today. And in these words struck me. It said, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples. Third time he did it. He revealed himself to these guys who denied him, abandoned him, left him alone, right? And God was like, like dude, you know, my goal, Steve, is always to reveal myself to you. Yeah, when many people look in the mirror of who they are, they don't like what they see. And what they see makes them feel unacceptable and they fear rejection. But I have good news. What you see is not who you are. Brothers, sisters, it's not you. It's the mirror. That was good. You tried. Some of you are just, you're good. I'm proud. And why do we see it? Oh, why is the image so distorted? I mean, why do we so many times look so squished and stretched and distorted? There's many reasons. I, I, I want to suggest just a few. Uh, number one is secular culture. It distorts how we see ourselves. See, our culture basically says that you're worthy and acceptable. In order to not look squished, stretched, and distorted, you have to look good and you have to have the goods. In other words, you're worthy and acceptable if you're good-looking, if you can slam dunk a basketball, hit a three-pointer, knock the ball to the park, play in the NFL. Uh, you're worthy and acceptable if you have a, a DR before your name or a PhD after your name. You're worthy and acceptable if you drive an expensive car, live in a huge house, if you make a lot of money. Qu- question, where does that distortion leave the average person? And a place where they always feel like they're not good-looking enough, they can't do enough, they don't have enough, and they have not accomplished enough. You see, too often we base our self-worth on what the world views as valuable. So the world says that money is a barometer of value. If we don't have a great amount of it, then we feel bad about ourselves. Physical beauty has almost become a religion unto itself today, and those without it feel no value in a society that judges by the looks on the outside. In this age of celebrity, fame, followers, views of posts are used, are used to determine who's esteemed and who's to be shown in the basement. But listen, the more we focus on the world's standards and values, the more negative we will feel about ourselves. 
Again, it's not you. That's good. I had a thought pop into my head this morning. Well, lots of thoughts. Most I don't share. Um, this I posted. It is this. Um, why do we, why do I strive so hard to earn the world's validation when God wants to give me his? Like, I mean, you're working so hard. And yet God wants to give it to you. Another reason we looked, uh, we looked stretched, squished, and distorted is unaccepting parents. Uh, parents can say some crazy things. Uh, I've been a parent for almost 36 years. I know hard for you, some of you to believe as you look at me standing up here. Um, and, and I said some things as a parent that I never thought would come out of my mouth. Uh, this week I, I found uh, online a, 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 on the, uh, an article that said 40 things parents should not have to say to their kids but do. All right, and here, here's some of my favorites. Stop licking yourself. <clears throat> Why are you eating boogers? At what, what point did you think it was a good idea to poop in the front yard? Wearing underwear isn't optional. You must wear underwear. When you shower, you need to use soap every time. We don't pee on our friends. It isn't necessary to name your poops, just flush the toilet. I understand you love your fish, but you cannot cuddle him. <laughs> if you keep putting Legos up your nose, you won't have enough pieces to finish the kit. <laughs> what did you think the bottom of your shoe was going to taste like? <laughs> Don't be sad. Accidents happen. I pee when I sneeze. <laughs> we go to bed every night. I don't understand why you're shocked. We went to bed last night, the night before, the night before that. This is not new information. <laughs> Yes, I will love you even if you grow up to be a dinosaur. I promise. Don't put the dog in a chokehold. She does not like that. That's why she runs away every time she sees you. I love you, but go away. <laughs> I know she was mean to you, but you cannot stab her with a Lincoln log. Lincoln logs are not weapons. I don't cook vegetables because I hate you. I cook them because I love you. Get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. Buckle your seatbelt, buckle your seatbelt, buckle your seatbelt. Did you really just ask me what happens after I say three? <laughs> Take your food out of your pants. <laughs> People say those. You probably said some crazy things, funny things. Uh, they could say some uh, cruel things, some image distorting things. Why can't you be more like your brother? Can't you do anything right? I wish you were never born. You will always be a disappointment to me. You never amount to anything. I cannot wait till you grow up and get out of here. I never wanted you in the first place. Why, why do people look squished, stretched, and distorted when they look at themselves? Many times it's because of unaccepting parents. I understand that parents are a major cause of the distortion that people into their way into their adulthood see when they look at themselves. And basically what parents are saying in this distortion is, I reject you, I, I disown you. In a chapter called How Parents Shame Us, Smeeds writes, a man I know, I, I know disowned his children. 
When I learned what he had done, I thought he had decided not to leave his children any of his money, of which he had more than his share after he died, but that's not what he really meant. He meant to purge them from his life, make it official that he despised and rejected them. Uh, Disowning a child is a sure way to get a child to feel that he is not worth owning. Uh, The tragedy of being disowned is compounded by the fact that very decent people disown their own children. They may not do it totally, and, and they may not tell anyone about it, They do it in bits and pieces with facial expressions, chiding voices, and pious rebukes without ever saying, I disown you. However, they get the message across to their children as clearly as if they had announced it in the newspaper. Now, in order to understand what it means to disown a child, you need to know what it means to own a child. And owning a child does not have to do anything with possessing and controlling them. It's about a commitment of unconditional love that lets them know that they'll never be rejected or despised. Owning a child is expressed in three ways. By taking responsibility for them and their needs. By feeling pride and eager letting the world know, hey, that's my kid. And by finding joy in having them in your life. Listen, our world is full of people who have been abandoned by one or both parents. You know, I've been recently visiting with a, a guy in jail. And, and uh, you, you know, some stats say that 90% of felons in prison came from homes where there was no dad. And the fact that parents don't care enough to take responsibility for caring for them distorts this image that these children have of themselves. And it's also distorted when, when kids know that their parents aren't proud of them. Or that them being proud is kind of conditional. Like when they hit the home run, when they get the good grade, when they make the team, when they get into that prestigious college, they're proud. But when they fall short, when they fail, their parents let them know that, hey, that was not good enough. I remember sitting in a small group of college kids one day, and this kid was sharing. He was a high school senior, and his dad was actually a leader in the church. And he said when he got into the college he got into, he shared with his dad, his dad said, is that the best you could do? And you could see the disappointment on this guy's face. See, unaccepting parents can make us look stretched, squished, and distorted. But listen, you know what's coming, right? It's not you. It's and, I, and I don't know, maybe somebody in this room needs to hear some truth this morning. Seriously, like, like maybe God brought you here today. So he could say to you, it was not your fault. You were not and you are not unlovable. You are good enough. You are not a mistake. You can make something out of your life. You don't have to be like anyone else the matter. You are a good thing. And what was said was untrue and what was was done to you was wrong. And it's on them. It's not on you. Another cause of image distortion is graceless religion. Which tells us we have to live up to a bunch of rules and regulations in order to be worthy and acceptable to God. And graceless religion creates this false view of God. And this false view of God forms in our minds. And we project that false view on the one true God. And this projection creates a God who's almost impossible to please. And who is nearly always disappointed with us. See, graceless religion ties shame around our souls like an anchor that takes us down and never lets us up to take a breath. 
Religion without grace ties shame around our souls like an anchor that takes us down and never lets us up to take a breath. Question, do you feel like God is always disappointed with you? Do you feel like you never measure up to him? Do you feel ashamed to come into his presence? Do you feel like God is always angry at you and may not even like you? If that's how you feel, I want to tell you today that it's not you. It's the mirror. Another source of image distortion is guilt. You see, guilt basically says, I did, therefore I am. Uh, Guilt says one bad act defines who we are. But, But that makes about as much sense as hammering one nail makes you a carpenter. I've hammered a nail. I am not a carpenter. Anyone who went to Mexico with me knows I am not a carpenter, right? I had to get help from so many people. Hey, I bent another nail over. Please help me, right? Brother, brother, where's the love? (laughs) You were there. Hey, we measured and measured. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Mike Drew would like to come up and share a few words. (laughs) I understand some people, maybe you're one of them, when they look in the mirror of who they are, all they see is their sin, their failure, and their mistakes. But listen, no matter what you've done, and you may have done some pretty bad stuff, you are not your sins and your failures. Amen? Amen. Repeat after me. I am not my sin and my failures. I am not my sin and my failures. Now say it like you mean it. I am not my sin and my Understand, brothers and sisters, you will never find who you are by looking in the mirror of your last mistake. And listen to me, the God that we worship, the God that we serve, does not see you through the lens of your mistakes. Your God sees you through the lens of his amazing grace. Amen? Amen. Uh, One final cause of image distortion is compulsive comparison. Understand, when you compare how you look, what you have, where you live, what you know, what you've accomplished, what you do to other people, your vision of who you are will be distorted. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 that when we compare ourselves with other people, it's not wise. It's dumb, stupid, shouldn't do it. Have you ever compared yourself to other people? The struggle's real, right? The struggle is real. And I've said this many times, but it bears repeating again and again and again. But in any other time in history, we live in a culture of compulsive comparison. I mean, it is crazy, man. It is on steroids, right? Because of social media, traditional media. I mean, we have instant access to the lies of those we know, those we don't know, those we can't stand, those we wish we were, and those we give anything to measure up to. But We don't have actually access to their lives. We have access to the parts of their lives they want us to see. We have access to their highlight reels. And listen, when you compare your behind-the-scene reality to other people's highlight reels, to the perfect, look at my life, look at my vacation, look at my family, look look at my food post, right? Everything is wonderful. The image of who you are will be distorted because that's not reality. Once I got done snapping that 
family Christmas picture that looked so great near the fireplace. They were fighting and hollering, right? You know, you, you know craziness happened. If you don't sit down and shut up, I pay good money for us to be here. Just smile. You're not getting any of your prayer, right? We know. Oh, it's so great. My husband's so wonderful. Never does anything wrong. My wife, my kids. Oh, this vacation's been great. It's great. Look at my food. Even my food is wonderful. It sings to me as I eat it, right? You know, it's ridiculous. It's not real. It's just not real. It's an illusion. As my favorite band when I was growing up would say, sticks, it's a grand illusion. Secular culture, unaccepting parents, grace religion, guilt, and compulsive comparison distort how we see ourselves. Here's the bottom line. These things make, make us feel a lot like Cinderella felt BPC before Prince Charming. <laughs> we all know the story of Cinderella. Uh, she had a wicked stepmother and some very wicked and ugly stepsisters who put the end in nastiness and cruel. I mean, they treated her bad. They, they made her her servant. And they, they were able to convince Cinderella that all she would ever be is simply a handmaid. And I don't know about you, but as, even as a kid, when I looked at her, I'm like, seriously, Cinderella, can't you see how pretty you are? Inside and out, can't you just look in a mirror and see what you really look like? I bet you've wanted to say that to some people, right? Because you see them differently than they see themselves. How can you see yourself that way? How can you see yourself as a failure, as a loser, or not good enough, or not beautiful? But tragically, the voices in her head from her stepsisters and stepmother were much too loud. Therefore, Cinderella believed that she was not good enough and that she would never be anything more than a servant. And she believed the only chance she had to go to the ball was if she had a costume, something to cover her up, to hide. But the whole time she's at the ball, she's watching the clock. And when it struck midnight, she ran out as fast as she could in fear of being exposed for the homely housemaid she believed that she was. Listen, like Cinderella, you have an enemy that whispers in your head and shouts deep in your heart that you are not worthy, that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up. An enemy who will use many things to distort how you see yourself. An enemy who is more cruel than those evil stepsisters who wants to convince you that all you can ever hope to be is a handmaid. If you ever want to go out in the real world, cover yourself up so people can't see who you really are. But brothers and sisters, it's not you. It's a mirror. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to remove all those distortions so that we could see ourselves as we really are through his eyes. And the reason that he can, he's able to do this, is because as your next point in your note says, he's the one whose image was not distorted. Now, I understand when Jesus looked in the mirror of who he was, he did not see a distortion like Cinderella and like you and I see at times. Instead, he saw clearly who he was every single time he looked. Why is that? Well, why did Jesus see himself so clearly? What was it that made Jesus so sure of who he was? I'm convinced that one of the keys to understanding that goes back to that passage I read earlier from Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, Jesus' baptism and his temptation. 
So Jesus, who's without sin, stands in line with sinners to be baptized. When his turn comes, his cousin John freaks out. Why? Because John knows two things. He knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is. You should be baptized with me. But Jesus says, no, John, it's got to be this way. And John says, okay. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being tore open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Henry Henry Nguyen in his book, Jesus, a Gospel, it's a great book, it looks at the gospel through the writing of Henry Nguyen and through uh, portraits, paintings, artwork of uh, Rembrandt. And he says this, I very much believe that the core moment at Jesus' public life was the baptism in the Jordan. When Jesus heard the affirmation, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased, that is the core experience of Jesus. He's reminded in a deep way of who he is. He continues, the temptations in the desert are temptations to move away from that spiritual identity. He was tempted to believe that he was someone else. You are the one who can turn stone into bread. You're the one who can jump from the temple. You're the one who can make others bow down to your power. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm the one loved by God. And he writes this, I think his whole life is continually claiming that identity in the midst of everything. Powerful. No, I'm the one loved by God. I I think his whole life is continually claiming that identity in the midst of everything. And when Jesus wore flesh, there was a whole lot of everything. I understand when the Father ripped open the heavens, when the Spirit descended like a dove, and when the Father shouted from the sky, you are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, Jesus was giving a mirror that if he continued to look in, would never allow the image of who he really was to be distorted. I understand when the devil tempted him, when people rejected him, when his own would not receive him, when they wanted to make him a worldly king, when they praised him for his miracles, when the leaders turned against him, when a friend betrayed him, when everyone abandoned him, Jesus still knew who he was. He was never tempted to be someone else. No, no, I'm not the rejected one. I'm not a worldly king. I'm not the one that everyone abandons. No, I'm the one loved by my Father. You see, the only thing that Jesus let define him, the only mirror he looked into was the mirror of the Father's love. Which is why when Jesus wore flesh, he was all about the Father, right? He said, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And it was dark moments when Jesus was facing the biggest challenges. What did he do? He went off by himself alone to be with the Father. Final point in your notes is seeing yourself in a different mirror. See, Jesus came to show us who we are. And listen, the very moment that Jesus' sandals hit the dusty streets of this world and he encountered people, he held a mirror up to them that was so different than the ones they've been looking into. It was such a refreshing look. I mean, for the first time, the image of who they were was no longer distorted. I mean, try to imagine what it was like for them to look into the mirror of who they were. I'm not a failure. I'm not someone who men use and throw away when they're done. I'm a person of worth who God loves. I'm someone he spoke to. I'm the first person he told that he was the Messiah. 
the woman at the well. I'm not stuck. I'm not trapped in a system that I helped to create and that I no longer believe in. I'm not just some legalistic Pharisee that God wants to throw away. No, I'm someone that, that he invites to be born again to his kingdom. Nicodemus, I'm not alone. I'm not unacceptable. I don't have to go living this way, feeling this way. Jesus says he wants to be my friend. Zacharias, I'm not a criminal. I'm not just a criminal. I'm not just a useless human being condemned to die. No, I'm one that he invites to come into paradise with him, the thief on the cross. I understand that to those and to others, to lepers and to sinners, to the demon-possessed, to the, to the tax collectors, to the, to the prostitutes, Jesus held up a mirror to show them who they really were, who they really are. And the good news, the great news, is that Jesus, just as he did for them, invites you and I to look into the same mirror that he looked into, the mirror of the Father's love. John 3, 16, God loved the people of this world so much that he he gave his only son that everyone who has faith in him will have eternal life and never really die. The Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe I came from God. Understand, today, February the 2nd, 2020, the Father, once again, is ripping open the heavens and he's saying, it's not you! It's the mirror that you've been looking into. He says, today I invite you to look into a different mirror and see yourself through my eyes. And God looks at you today and he says, you know who you are? You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are the one I love. You are the one I chose. You are the one I adopted to be in my family. You're the one who is my masterpiece, my one-of-a-kind masterpiece. You're the one that though you have flaws and failures are still worthy of my grace, still worthy of the death of my son. See, we need to look at a different mirror. The mirror of the Father's love and acceptance. Listen, to do that, I got to tell you how you got to do that. This is the mirror right here, right? That's what James said, right? You want to hear what God thinks about you? And some of you are starving and all you see is distortion because you won't look in here. And God wants to tell you how much he loves you. He wants to tell you how much he wants to do in you, how he sees you, but you won't take a look. Maybe you will. Who are you? Lean in and listen alive and actively. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand, and when I wake up, you are still with me. Question, who made you? 
Who made you? Not a trick question. Who made you? God. God. And listen, if they did not make you, they do not get to define you. Amen? Who made you? God made you. So let God be your mirror. And I, I want to encourage you with these, uh, make these five words your mantra, right? My maker is my mirror. My maker is my mirror. And, and so when comparison and guilt, when guilt tries to define you, you say, hey, you didn't make me. My maker is my mirror, and my maker says that in Christ I am forgiven. Whenever you have thoughts that you're not good enough, that you don't measure up, when other people try to define you, say, hey, you're not my maker, secular culture. You're not my maker, gracious religion. You're not my maker, unaccepting parents or other people. You're not my maker. My maker is my mirror, and my maker loves me, and he's the one who defines me. Amen? Father God, You know us. And Lord, I just pray that right now you help each of us to get honest with you. Honest about how we see ourselves. And God, I just pray that if someone's in here, that image is distorted. Because of things said to them, things done to them, things they did themselves. Expectations placed upon them that were not placed upon them by you. God, I just pray that they will make you their maker, their mirror, God. God, I I know it has to hurt you so bad to see people you love so deeply not see themselves as you see them. To not see that they're worthy, that they're chosen, that they're loved, that they're adopted, that that they're your sons and your daughters. God, give us a hunger to see ourselves through your eyes, to see ourselves through the amazing love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.